0: Yes, Sister White. We will not fear.
1: The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move, with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll
0: never forget. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the podcast series inspired by the book A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My name's Nathan Brown, co-editor of the book and host of this podcast. Uh, We're a few episodes in and we're continuing our series of conversations with contributors to the book A House on Fire. Uh, Thank you to the good folks of Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices who have uh, agreed to share this con- these conversations with the wider world. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to work with them. And we also appreciate the good people that join our conversations. And on this episode, we have a extra special co-host by the name of Claudia Allen. How are you doing, Ms. Allen?
1: <laughs> hey, how are you, Nathan? It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, uh, Claudia Allen is Community Outreach Supervisor for the Howard County Government Office of Human Rights and Equity in Columbia, Maryland, and also lay pastor at the Emmanuel Brinklow Seventh-day Adventist Church. I think I got all of that.
1: (laughs) You got all of it, friend. Absolutely.
0: And our special guest uh, contributor on this episode is Matthew Kortman. I got told that I should not uh, over- over egg his titles but he is an adjunct professor at uh la sierra university and also a doctoral candidate at bristol university so a um bristol did i get that wrong
2: yes university of birmingham
0: university of birmingham i knew it was a british place that started with b (laughs) close close enough right (laughs) (laughs) you know we can kind of you know homogenize the um British the the Great Britain's uh, education sector why the University of Birmingham
2: Ah, because uh, Canada Moss is teaching there and uh, she's my doctoral advisor so I I primarily chose uh, Birmingham because I wanted to work with her on New Testament studies
0: Ah, very cool awesome so just a moment of um, mutual nerdity what's your topic
2: so um, my topic is to go ahead and uh examine the interpretation and reception history of the parable of the ten virgins
0: mm-hmm. uh
2: and to reconstruct the marginalized voices of its earliest interpreters.
0: Mm. Wow. That's cool. That sounds like Absolutely. fun. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Um, so your chapter in a house on fire. I should have had the title in front of me. Re- reading. Preaching a black Christ. That's it. Doing black
1: theology with Ellen White. You don't have to do the hard work by yourself, Nathan. That's why you have a co host, friend. <laughs>
0: nice work. You don't have to
1: do the hard work alone, okay? <laughs> this man pr- wrote a chapter entitled Preaching a Black, and y'all italicize the black, not Matthew, a black Christ doing black theology with Ellen White.
0: So I have a, si- a simple question, Matthew. Why? yeah that's a really good question.
2: Uh, <laughs> the The backstory of the chapter is interesting because I well I mean, my journey on this topic was was certainly not predictable. So originally when I was a student at Lossier University, I think I was in my junior year, I think so, I took um ethnic issues in the church with uh, Professor Maury Jackson, who I know you you had previously you know was previously the connection. Yeah, yes, yes. Something to do with the book. I, you guys have had at least, a, I think, some conversation with him. Um, mm-hmm. And so when he started exposing us, he he gave like a bunch of books, and he was exposing us to Gustavo Gutierrez and and like a number of mm-hmm. different liberation theologians. And and so we were mm-hmm. kind of trying to connect all of this together. And it was my first exposure to some of these more contemporary theological approaches, at least in the primary sources you know not just hearing people talk about it but you're reading the individuals um you know one of the books i remember was how africa shaped uh the, the christian world mm-hmm. or shaped christianity i forget the exact title and and um how Irish how the irish saved christianity there was a bunch of different titles we read through but one of them was um black theology black power by james cone uh he had his first book that he came out with. And when I read it, and I think, I think if I remember the demographics of the class, I think it was like, mm, if I had to guess, I think it was at least 50% uh, black, but I think maybe even 60 70% black in terms of the student demographics. I think there was like 10 or 11, 12 students. And um, we were all good friends. And when I read Cone, everybody there, you know, all the black students were like, this is so good. And I'm like reading this book and I finish it. I'm like, I'm horrified. I'm like, what in the (laughs) world did I just, why? Like I trusted you, Dr. Jackson. Like this is, what is this? You know? Uh, And mainly because there were just certain passages where he's like, we must in the name of Christ, like start breaking down the windows, (laughs) and throwing (laughs) rocks. And, and, and I was just like, I, you know, I was naively interpreting this through what I think, you know, you'd later think of as sort of like a universalist lens of, of civility and sort of imagining, you know, that the, the peace and security you take for granted is just a universal truth that, you know, operates at all times. And so even though I'm sure that I knew about the civil rights movement, I had a deep understanding uh, growing up in America, all these movies we watch. But at the same time, I don't think it was viscerally aware, like I wasn't able to appreciate where Cone was when he was writing that and and also his more, his more, um, his leaning towards Malcolm X. I also was not f- as familiar with that divide in terms of the perspectives in the 60s on exactly what was the future going to look like and what did you need to do to secure, you know, your livelihood. So that was missing. And so I just found that so weird. I remember there was this one guy, I think his name was David. Uh, and he just said, you know, I believe in you, Matt. You know, you're, you're go- you'll you come around. You'll come around. You will like this guy. You will. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't think so. I think that's what I replied. <laughs> um, and then uh, Dr. Jackson was going to teach a honors class I was taking in religion which was, I think it was Religion in the Future. And so, of course, again, uh, in true Dr. Jackson fashion, he has like eight books that you have to read through in the quarter, one by one. And uh, one of them was Cone, but it was The Cross and the Lynching Tree. So I went ahead and, and we had to write the way he does these classes, at least he used to. I don't know. I haven't been in one <laughs> this year. But the way he used to do it is you'd have to write like conference style reports. Like you either summarize what he says or you got to go write like a positive description or a negative critique. So obviously, when I got when I was in the class and he's like, all right, now sign up. I immediately I was like, I know I want to do the critique of the cross and the lynching tree. I know this will be so easy because I hated that first book. <laughs> I thought <think> it will be <laughs> so easy. Um, and I tell you, the I opened up the paper with, I signed up for this paper thinking that this was going to be so easy. And I mm. have found throughout this quarter that I, I cannot, practically speaking, come up with a critique uh, of this book. Mm. Um, and, and it was a real interesting twist because I went in going, here we go. I'm looking for all those things that I think are going to trigger me and instead, all I got was an awakening. And I was like, wow, this is really, really powerful. Uh, I think the critique I came up with is that he wasn't strong. He wasn't, he didn't push hard enough against the, um, the white theology of those who were lynching black people. I think my critique was I wanted him to go deeper into what was, what was their construct theologically, nail it down mm-hmm. precisely and, and explain what was, what needed to die about it. But so then after that I went to I was I was really engaged in thinking about this and I was like wow this is really interesting and so eventually I read his second book went back in time and read uh, the Black Theology of Liberation which quickly became my favorite work of his and when I did that you know I had during the Black Lives Matter movement that was going on then I had been searching through the Ellen White website archives to try to think about, well, what did Ellen White have to say about these issues? Is there anything I can, you know, put as quotes? Is there anything that's util- useful as resources? Because obviously, a lot of conservative um, Adventists, uh, predominantly white, who are going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement are going to say, oh, it's political. Ellen White told us to stay away from politics, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. You know, they, it gets weaponized in this sense of sort of like, negative. And then of course, on the other end, you've got some people who very much dislike Ellen White. And they're like, ah, you know, she has nothing good to say about race. And look, there's problematic stuff over here and over here. And you know, we might get to that. But the thing is, is that I, you know, I was like, okay, but what does she have to say? And so I I like to, given my training in biblical studies, I want to go into the primary source, figure out what was actually said, not just the interpretation. And when I went to go look, I found a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, things where she was like you know basically there's one quote where she's like the white race has failed and they will suffer their sin and i'm like whoa what's what i was really surprised by how radical some of the things she was saying sounded like if they were put on twitter um and i was like okay Uh, actually that's a good idea (laughs) maybe that's a good uh, twitter account to create anyways (laughs) the point is is that I I had these ideas percolating and I knew about some of these quotes, including some where she was talking about like the need for the government to give reparations. Uh, that was really surprising. Cause you know, you grow up in Adventism and everyone just thinks they must know all of the most big things Ellen White says. Cause you know, how could you go this many years and no one mentioned this? You don't even have, you know, the yeah. ex Adventist mentioning it <laughs> when they're attacking. Um, you're like, okay, well, so, I was in a class with John Webster for doing um, Theology 3. I think it was the final sequence. And I asked to do a paper on contemporary theolo- theological approaches. I wanted to do a study of, of Ellen White as a theological-esque thinker alongside uh, James Cone. And to see what she has to do or what she could connect with in terms of um, Black theology. And he okayed the project. And I dumped, uh, jumped into it and uh and what came out largely was the draft of what became the chapter that was uh submitted for this book project which was great cuz the the paper was finished in like 2017 or it might have been either yeah i think it was 2017 and so it had just been sitting and i had wanted to i had wanted to get that uh published for a long time um because no one else was talking about it and then i remember i saw Calvin Rock's um, uh, chapter that was touching on this, which I think he was the first, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first explicit Adventist to try to talk about black theology with Ellen White in a volume that came out from a bunch of contributing Oakwood professors. And so I was really excited. I was like, man, you know, I think this conversation should grow wider. And so I was really, really happy. When um, Nathan, you and and Maury had reached out to say, hey, you know, would you like to be a part of this project and contribute? I was like, yes, I know exactly what I want to submit. (laughs) Um, So when you asked me, why did I why did I write this? Well, you know, in some respect, I wrote it because of the journey I had gone through uh, going from, you know, a you know, initially thinking, oh, this is crazy to later embracing it as a beautiful testament to how to envision the Christian gospel, Mm -hmm. and also because I can tell that in Adventism today, there are not the resources that are needed to deal with these topics. Uh, and some are controlling the narrative by essentially ignoring those aspects of our history that don't conveniently connect well with um, the narratives that they're struggling against. And so, you know, it's one thing, you know, everybody wants to craft God into their own image, but people also want to craft Ellen White into their own image. And that's that's a, a an issue that we all have to wrestle with, but... Before you can even wrestle with how you craft, you first got to know, well, what are the puzzle pieces you're working with? Mm. And unfortunately, there's just not a lot of good material out there. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this chapter is serving that purpose of giving at least a start to provoking conversations and and getting people thinking about different quotes and, and statements and ideas that Ellen White had in her time that have not been given due diligence to kind of reflect on.
0: That's cool. Awesome. So... Claudia shared a, shared her sermon. That was her chapter in the book, and you shared your college homework. You know, that's kind of cool. <clears throat> the irony of that is that I recently had the opportunity to guest lecture for a class at Avondale University here in Australia, and they asked me to talk about Black theology. And my primary text was your chapter in the book, so the circle is complete. <laughs> 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 oh, that's, cool. oh, absolutely. that's funny absolutely so a simple question what is black theology
2: that is a simple question <laughs> uh i i'm by i'm gonna be straight up front okay my specialization and this is an important piece of background so my specialization and my education is primarily in biblical studies. So obviously, as a religious studies major, my education was rooted in the liberal arts tradition. You know, we take a certain amount of biblical studies, a certain amount of theology, but I was always the most driven towards biblical studies. In, in those classes, we never dealt with black theology exegesis. We never dealt with anything that, you know, literally the only time black theology came out was in that single class with Dr. Mm. Jackson, uh, and then the book we were reading, Crossing the Lynching Tree, again with Dr. Jackson. So, that was my understanding. And so, any amount of my introduction to Black theology was always, like, not even secondhand, but thirdhand through whatever I could try to get my hands on. Uh, When I went to Yale Divinity School, I was also... Again, in a Second Temple Judaism program, which meant that you only had four um, elective classes, and uh, the only reason, again, Black theology entered into the conversation is because I did one of my electives in a systematics theology class, which is way outside of what I was supposed to do. <laughs> so, and that was with Mirslav Volv, and so I I have always been someone who tried to be interdisciplinary. But of course, the the point is you always have what's your specialty, what's your expertise. So I would definitely not describe myself as an expert in black theology. You know, I don't have that that training and background. I'm pretty sure uh, that Claudia <laughs> could better, uh, given previous discussion before this, I'm pretty sure she could go ahead and, and answer that. But what I could say is that from the perspective of my reading of Cohn, and how black theology started in its early years. Not not reflective necessarily of how each person would think to craft or describe black theology contemporaneously. There were people who disagreed with Cohn. There are people who, you know, it's a large field, right? It's like trying to describe what's biblical studies. Like, okay, well, let me describe the camps and what different people think is the way to do it. But from Cohn's perspective, which was the analysis with, with Ellen White, so the core ideas, for Cohn, it was very much... Recognizing, uh, and I'm putting this into my own words, not not his own, mm-hmm. but it'll be inspired for sure. It's taking a look at what is contrary to what must be the character of God, and what must be the character of God is what is in favor of the black community who represents the God who is black. And so, mm-hmm. in some sense, um, Cone is taught is caught between this oppressive image of God that the white uh, the white community has put up, the white Jesus, the white God, which is oppressing and suppressing and entrapping the black community. And Jesus, um, he he takes these qualities and he he, sim- he symbolizes them within the American community so that whiteness becomes, uh, you know, what we might say is like antichrist and, and blackness becomes Christ-like. And so in that sense, then he, he, takes these ideas in order to suggest that, um, obviously God is not antichrist. Again, I'm paraphrasing, doing my own words here. God's not antichrist. So God then is not white. God is then what Christ is. And that's black. Blackness is those who are oppressed, those who God has come to, to save. And so then of course, in his own language, he's using this to argue that, um, God is black in terms of what blackness symbolizes, and the white God is not the God of the black church and should not be. And and anyone who's worshiping the white God is is in fact worshiping an idol, uh, a a false creation. So for him, a, a very stark reality of what he proposed black theology had to be is the reclaiming of a correct understanding of who God is, uh, especially within the context of, of uh, racial disparities and uh, conflict that were going on, but also mm-hmm. an understanding of reorienting oneself to the voice of the oppressed, that God is on, you know, to, to borrow the, the sort of the Latin liberation theologians, you know, God is on the side of the oppressed, he's He's in favor of those who are oppressed. But, but Cone particularly racializes this in a way that is also unique in the sense that it He was open to an idea that not all black theologians are, that these qualities were purely symbolic and that real race was secondary. So in that sense, Cohn was willing to say or entertain the idea that white people could become black symbolically. And uh, people who were uh, black could become white based off of what their symbolic representations were, you know. Uh, so you could, you could, you could, if you were a white person, you could become part of the, the symbolic black community if you were against the white God and you were against these things and you joined. Um, but that's obviously, again, kind of underscoring Cone's particular in large symbolic perspective, not all black theologians kind of subscribe to that. I know I've talked to some who are like, yeah, I disagree with him on that idea. Um, And so, you know, it's a large conversation, but I think at its core for someone who's like, I don't know, what is black theology? It's really about how do you perceive God in light of oppression and on what side is he on? And if somebody immediately goes, usually somebody who comes from a non-marginalized community, they say, well, you know, I think God's on every side. God loves everybody. Cohn's answer to that would be, you know, when, when the Nazis are trying to kill the Jews, uh, you know, he didn't use this exact analogy, but this would be in the sense, it'd be like, well, a God who's going to go ahead and, and, and love equally and not care enough about the circumstances of one group over the other in order to step in and stop it. If that's not the ethics of that God, then this is a useless God. A god whose love is worthless. Uh, it would be like uh, two children trying to kill each other, uh, or one child trying to kill another, and the mother's just sitting there going, "Well, I love you both." You know, it's like, no, you have to step in and make a decision here. Uh, you know, you may love them both, but how are you going to effectively uh, stop what is this oppressive uh, activity? So, in that sense, Cone is very much trying to and 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 i think it can be sympathized by a lot of people who are adventists you know adventism have always we've always thought about the great controversy in terms of character of god in terms of what is intrinsic to god is it love or is a satan was claiming uh you know a dictatorship well you know cone is is drawing the line so starkly for black theology that it's like look to be a black theologian is to understand you cannot have it both ways If God cares about the oppressed, then the oppressor is wrong. Mm -hmm. And you cannot try to cut it up with love in so many ways that you try to equalize. You're going to have to recognize that there's an imbalance here, not created by God, Mm -hmm. but it is necessary in reaction to recognize the imbalance because otherwise, how can you affect uh, or outreach to those who are the most oppressed or the ones who are the most suffering? Um, And so I think... Again, if you know, it's it's both simple in in the sense of God's character, but it's complex in the sense of how do you parse that out in American culture, uh, and you know that that's also something that can strike people about Black theology is how American centric it is. Um, a lot of times, you know, Cone is specifically, you know, approaching this issue from the perspective of his own experience in the '60s and '70s, and that is a very different context than somebody might be reading this somewhere else in the world. Uh, but you know, it's the same issue of like, how do you recognize or think about, you know, wanting to bake a pie? Well, you can't just bake pie. Generally, you're going to have to bake an apple pie or or a boysenberry pie. You you can't just, Mm -hmm. you can't just bake pie. Generally, same way. You can't just cure cancer. Generally, you're going to have to target a specific cancer. Um, and so people should not complain, like, oh no, this is too American-centric. It's like, well, it has to be for the fact that that's where he pastorally was was focused on. And um, Mm -hmm. of course, these issues in Black theology can be Uh, even, you know, I think, you know, in God of the Oppressed, he takes recognition of these issues can be um, enlarged to deal with more general senses of privilege and problems across the world. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not trying to solve the world's problems from 10,000 feet above. He's trying to, in the ditches, in the the battlefield in America, try to handle the issues in his own time and place. So Black theology has a lot of insights. um, And not only just for... Uh, the black community, but even in larger scale, as he recognized for oppressed communities across the world.
1: So I appreciated uh, you really kind of bringing out the point about Christ's blackness as part of the kind of integral definition to uh, black theology. And in your chapter, um, you know, as you're kind of explaining that history and, and, and explaining Cohn's perspective, uh, you say this symbolic blackness is needed. He believes because although Christ is popularly depicted as white, white Christians are under the self-delusion that their pictures of the white Jesus are raceless. And so I would love to just get your perspective on why is it that depictions of white Jesus are raceless and non-controversial um, in comparison to um Excuse me, a black Christ who is um, borderline offensive, um, and typically generates a vehement or violent negative reaction um, from a lot of white Christians.
2: I think, yeah, it's a very good question because I think, in general, the problem that emerges is one that has, you know, for for those that are new to this, the best way to understand it, I think, is to think about what you call majority privilege which is really just what white privilege means within the American context, because who's the majority Mm -hmm. that was shaping the society and and its laws. Uh, So majority privilege is just like, well, if this is what you're used to all the time, and this is what you see, this is your norm, right? This is what shapes your norm. This is what you expect to be your norm. And so even if you theoretically have in your head a knowledge that you know, such and such isn't really the case. You have an emotional experiential knowledge of, well, this is what I've come to expect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, um, I grew up in Southern California. And so, I, you know, when I go to a store, I, I have an expectation of diversity. I expect to walk into a into a supermarket and see many, 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 you know, percentages of different people from different backgrounds around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just what I expect. You know, if you grow up in this area, you know, there are no white only churches for the most part. Like they're they're interracial mixed groups. So if you suddenly walk into a church, I remember one time I, I did, I, I was invited to go to a black church and I walked in and I'm the only white person mm-hmm. at this church. Like that was like a, a racial awakening moment for me, because even though I, I you might know something in theory, but experientially mm-hmm. I'd never experienced walking in and knowing I'm different. I'm the different, I, I'm the minority yeah. here. Like I'm, yeah. I wow. And, and then you start, you know, Oh, are they looking at me funny because I'm not like everyone else here? And and you start having all these experiences and you're like, ah, yeah. Okay. I think I, I think I'm beginning to, to marry experience with, with theory. All right. I'm getting a sense. People know that Jesus is middle Eastern mm-hmm. and they know that Jesus isn't white. Although sometimes, you know, white and middle Eastern get mixed together uh, on different government records and history and so forth. But when we think about, Jesus, so many people just sort of presume that whatever is their norm, like I'm pretty sure like if you grew up in Japan and you only see, see Japanese Jesus, or, or if you're in China or Korea, you only see an Asian version of Jesus. And that's how the, the artwork is depicted all the time. You'd probably be weirded out to see a white Jesus. Be like, What, what is that? Um, and the problem is, it's like people are affirming something that they don't consciously affirming, which is that Although Jesus as a historical individual was a Middle Eastern man, uh, dark skinned, who, who is Jewish, the Christ who reigns in heaven represents all humanity in all of its various shades. And so the problem becomes: It's like yes, it, you know, if you understand that, then it's exciting. You see, oh, there's there's the Asian depiction of Jesus. There's there is the Latin American depiction of Jesus. There's Black Jesus. There's and you understand like this isn't trying to claim the historical Jesus is these things. You're understanding that this is Jesus to all humanity. He is all the races. He is all. And so when you understand that theoretically, like okay, but a lot of people don't. I think a lot of white communities. Have this, they know Jesus isn't like a white European individual, but they've grown up with it Mm -hmm. so much that they don't Mm -hmm. actually realize, oh, right, he's every race, and you can depict Jesus in lots of different ways. Um, I might also expand this to point out you want to know something that's way more crazy to people would be a different gender Jesus. Like if we go from black Jesus to uh, there's depictions of black female Jesus, and people freak out, I think, even more at that idea, even though, in, as I explore in my book, Saying No to God, but, um, you know, and, and other scholars have explored this in feminist theology. When you go to Paul in First Corinthians, he identifies Jesus as the incarnation of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs. And Ellen White did so as well. She also says that Lady Wisdom is talking about, that woman in Proverbs is a, a description of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the. That all right strikes people strange. Hebrews does this also. It it, uh, it alludes to Jesus as feminine. Yeah. Um, and again, it was Paul and Hebrews trying to say that Jesus is uh, is as historically a woman. No, they know Jesus is a historical male. That's not the point. It's the theology. The fact that Jesus as the Christ transcends. Uh, He represents male and female, all humanity, right? But a lot of white people don't have that understanding because they've grown up with this, this image and that image then becomes idolatrous because it begins to be mistaken as the reality, no matter what their, what their internal conception is. And that becomes something that Whenever there's an idol that's in the place of God, it needs to be crushed. It needs to be challenged. And that's one thing that's very helpful about, about Black theology is, of course, it is challenging that idol. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that when you challenge the idol and smash it, right, to to, to draw on John Shelby Spong's image, and uh, by no means am I a fan of everything John Shelby Spong says, so someone who's like freaking out that I'm quoting him, but he has really interesting anecdotes that he says sometimes one of them is you know for the person who thinks that the idol sitting where god should be is god like they think that idol's god yeah when you destroy that idol it's going to be experienced by that person like god died yeah yeah like god's getting attacked yeah and that's how a lot of white people respond to black images of jesus or other images of jesus from other races or or even genders. It's like, oh my goodness, you're attacking God. Right. It's like, no, we're not attacking God. We're attacking the idol.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think kind of what, what's important even in talking about that idol is I think that James Cone's Black Theology is also coming at a really interesting time, right? Because Salman Rushdie's portrait of Jesus Is literally becomes the infamous image of Christ where you get this Nordic blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus uh, during World War II. And all of these um, American soldiers have these small printed images of Jesus in their wallets. And they come home from the war and the Salman Rushdie uh, portrait of Christ is hanging in churches. It's hanging in homes. It's hanging in black homes, right? So they There's a particular image of a white Jesus, uh, you know, that is also uh, that has actively become an idol. So, like, there is a there is a mass national image that has been accepted that this is this is what Jesus looks like, and so I think that what's amazing about uh, James Cone's black theology is it is a call to an understanding of the historical Jesus. And it's asking people to return to an understanding of the historical Jesus as a brown uh, Jew uh, from a part of the world where he could flee to Egypt as a refugee and successfully hide. Right? And so by... Um, reconfiguring um, the historical Jesus. Cone also asks us to then put that historical Jesus who is poor, the historical Jesus who is refugee, the historical Jesus who is carpenter, that historical Jesus to place him and then in the social context of the poor, marginalized African-American male um, and then to see the experience of historical Jesus juxtaposed against the experience of Black Americans. And in a, so that when he asserts this very controversial radical statement, Jesus Christ is Black, you know, it's like James Cohn is basically saying this, this image of Salmon, uh, by Salmon, uh, this painter that you have in your house, that you have in your churches, um, I am seeking to destroy that idol from World War II that all of us have built up and accepted that is white Jesus. And I think because that kind of, not to mention the fact that whiteness as a racial history has typically not been viewed as a race because it has always been default. Um, I think that that also aids to um, the great language that you used in the text that to speak to um, just kind of the racelessness of a white Christ in comparison to the controversy that is that is often received on the flip side, when, when a person like, and not even James Cone, like County Cullen is a, is a African-American artist from the, during the Harlem Renaissance period who wrote a poem called the black Christ, um, where Jesus is crucified. And so, you know, Cone's the cross and the lynching tree. James Cone is actually not the first, Mm -hmm. um, African-American thinker or theologian to juxtapose, um, the lynching tree or the experience of, of enslaved lynched African-American men in particular to that of the experience of Jesus Christ and particularly him crucified. And so I think like Cone provides a theological, a systematic theological structure that explains how we can reread the Bible uh, through a lens, like you were saying before, that actually pulls marginalized people from the periphery and recenters them and centers them in such a way that is akin to that of scripture where Jesus is centering marginalized people. And Jesus is uh, trying to um, heal and bring light to those, those persons in ways that the Pharisees and Sadducees and other leaders uh, just simply did not. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. I think, I think one way of thinking is like, um, You know, we know that people naturally come to recognize or think it natural to imagine the reigning Christ of heaven in the light of who they are, right? You go to Ethiopia and you look at ancient Ethiopian Christian art, you know, everyone's black. Like, okay, this happens everywhere. We have Asian art depictions of of Jesus and Mary, and we get this, right? But in some sense, Cohn becomes one of the first to draw attention to this as not just cultural but to really make you self-aware of it happening not just auto we all do it but like well wait a minute
1: yeah
2: what happens when you become self-aware of the fact that you're doing it yeah and then how and why do you choose to view things differently right because what cone invites someone like me as a white uh, male to do or somebody else uh, who's white or somebody who's you know not part of the black community is to say well i'm inviting you to imagine jesus as other than you mm mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. which in all these other respects, we just auto associate Christ in re- terms of like, well, he's like me. That's how I relate to him. Okay, now imagine the opposite. What if? And I mean, he's not doing that to the black community. He's saying no, you, for them, you need to imagine him like you. You haven't been because of this idol. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he's inviting the idol worshippers say, "Oh, wait a minute. You know, why might you want to think that it's helpful to think of this as an idol?" in order to reorient your own perspective. Because again, it became the default without consciously deciding that. Just like, oh, we're just unconscious. And then uh, that unconscious bias of this is the default becomes the conscious bias of, oh, well, those black depictions of Jesus are heretical or wrong. Right. And so, you start getting this division within the body of Christ. Yeah. Because like Paul would say, some parts of the body are starting to think that they're much better than the others. Mm -hmm. And and you're losing sight. So, Cone really is helpful as an anecdote to reorient. Mm. And I think that that goes back and ties in with, you know, the parallels that you see with Ellen White, where she's, you know, going ahead and saying, you know, um, the the most privileged white person, um, if they understand, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, they should understand that it'd be better for them to be black instead. Um, they need to, they need to understand that Jesus, uh, is, uh, you know, siding with those who are black and are oppressed. Uh, he's not siding mm-hmm. with the slave owners. Um, you know, she's causing in her own way, trying to draw attention to the sense, uh, that people need to recognize, uh, and become self-aware of sort of the racial, defaults that they're kind of going to or their assumptions of class or privilege or any of these other factors that shape our view of reality.
1: Mm -hmm. So, so to that, I, I want to kind of ask a question now, like, because the immediate question that comes to my mind is where in the world did she say that? Like what, what, what letter, what book? did Ellen White say that? I feel like that's the, you know what I mean? Cause I think when people hear Ellen White's positive uh, musings around, you know, quote unquote, our duty to the colored people, that is typically what they are talking about is that, that, that one manuscript, right? That she you know, has these writings in and that's kind of what we can go back to and reference you know, probably more easily than some of her other writings and works, um, at least as relates to um, race and our obligation to African-Americans. You said a line I've never heard of in my life. And I actually have read a lot of Ellen White as relates to race. And I actually know people that I'm not even going drop name drop on this podcast who do work with Ellen White. And they've never given me that line. So I I would love to know just like what were some of the what were some of the E.G. White sources that you used that you were that you found to be very helpful to you as you were kind of drawing this connection between um Ellen White and black theology
2: Sure I mean obviously um I'll draw on what's listed here in the chapter so readers I mean listeners who want to they should pick up the book House on Fire and they should be able to turn to the chapter and they'll see you know a bibliography with references they can look up these things but for example you know um we can look at a statement I mean she obviously part of the difficulty with previous efforts has been that they've largely been either without the aid of the online website repository of all of Ellen White's comments unpublished and published Ooh. or they just ignored it because <laughs> they're not tech savvy and and they're they're more they're they're just not thinking to go look yeah. so obviously you know you've got a work like um you know the the famous manuscript that sh- I'm forgetting what was the title here I'm going back to my bibliography and pull it up here. Um, our duty to the colored people manuscript six, 1891. Um, and I think that parts of that manuscript got published in, um, I, I try the Southern work. Um, I try to, I try often to, to quote the original manuscripts rather than like their later formulations and in, in books, even though most people oh. are going to draw on the books because that was the only resource they had. So, you know, if you want to know what does Ellen White have to say on this subject, they're going to pull out the yeah. Southern work and they're going to be like, all right, there's something that probably has a lot of works, you know, all put together. Right. But now we have websites, right? So we can, we can go onto the website, official EG White writings website and, And say, ah, you know, let me put in these terms. What do I find? Mm -hmm. What did she say? And then you find these manuscripts, these comments, things that, uh, or an article reference that, you know, maybe it wasn't the whole point of the article. But it just gives you a sense more widely spread out of what she was talking about. So, one of these, I believe it's from, I think it's from Manuscript 6. But I had never heard it quoted either. Which is when she goes ahead and says... Um, it has become fashionable to look down upon the poor and upon the colored race in particular. Jesus was poor. He sympathized with the poor, the discarded, the oppressed, declares that every insult shown to them as if shown to himself. Now, Mm -hmm. people allude to this and they'll allude to it in the sense of God has sympathy. right? But then they ignore the whole as if it was shown to him yes and the the self ident the, the self identification angle here that mm-hmm. ellen white invites readers in this uh, moment to imagine that when you look on the black uh the black individual who's being um, maligned for whatever that you should see jesus in them mm-hmm. that's jesus there right so there's she's not sane like cone Jesus is Black, right? But she's creating the possibility of a mental image of look at a Black man, look at a Black woman. There's Jesus. See them there. Um, Mm -hmm. Another quote is, she says, uh, from the same manuscript, the same price was paid for the salvation of the colored man as for that of the white man. And the slights put upon the colored people misrepresent Jesus and reveal that selfishness, tradition, prejudice, pollute the soul. Those who slight a brother because of his color, are sliding Christ. So, again, like, not saying Jesus is Black, but again, creating that mental image of look at the Black individual and think Jesus, mm. right? And that association is, is just, you know, you can imagine it's radical, and yet it's also not radical enough, right? Because it's not enough to upset people, mm. right? which is interesting, right? It's like, you know, Ellen White is coming to the edge, but not enough to, you know, actually create a quote that's so divisive people are are enraged by it like cone could do by just going that extra step in clarity yeah um but the image is there and and why that becomes important of course is that it introduces that for some adventists you come across that i have who are you know very much uh they lean towards the right and they'll say you know they'll look at cone as heretical they'll look at cone as as doing the opposite of what should be done and quotes like this are important because they reveal Uh, They allow the connection between our current issues and discussions in time and what is our Adventist heritage. Mm -hmm. And to note that, no, this is the same project. This is the same large conversation, right? So you should not be looking at this as, oh, it's foreign. No, no, this this is a part of it. Another quote she does here, the day is coming when the kings and the lordly men of the earth would be glad to exchange places with the humble African who has laid hold on the hope of the gospel. Right. Um, You you know, one could put aside uh, sort of the uh, the the language that she's employing here in terms of uh, thinking about, you know, Africans, not instead of Americans that are going on. But on the other hand, this is also great for, in terms of thinking even larger, she may have intended it only about black slaves or freed black slaves, but her language now lends itself to a larger perspective on colonization. And how do we think about uh, the African community beyond the borders of America, right? That's when you're, you're asking your theological vision, Uh, to get creative with what Ellen White has to say. But of course, I think what you're more alluding to in some respects is that she also goes deeper into some of the quotes that i draw drawn. She's going into thinking about things that go further than just assuming the relationship between Blackness and Jesus, but also in terms of like imagining how do we think about the story of Black people within the biblical perspective. And of course, here, she has a a very stark parallel with Cohn, which is that she interprets during the Civil War that what is happening in the Civil War, uh, what Black people are enduring is something equivalent to what we read in the Exodus, that they are having their own Exodus experience, uh, that Black people should be connected to the Israelites. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Because again, it welcomes a, another assumption that white people are connected with Pharaoh. Right. They're the Egyptians, right? And that's Cone's point. He makes it much more clear. He makes it much more stark. And that's what right. causes people to get so angry. But Ellen White is is inviting the point. If if these people are the Israelites, who then are you? Right. Right. Where do you fit in that story? Um, and then, of course, obviously another quote that's important i think uh for our politics today is her reflecting after the civil war on exactly how do we think about reparations Mm -hmm. right which i think you can't imagine a more politically distraught Mm -hmm. topic for a lot of people and yet ellen white has Mm -hmm. plenty to say on it right now of course Mm -hmm. most of what she says here uh in various comments are related to issues of thinking about reparations from churches. But you do actually have a quote from her where she says in 1896, the American nation owes a debt of love to the colored race. And God has ordained that they, the government, the nation, should make restitution for the wrong that they have done them in the past those who have taken no active part in enforcing slavery upon the colored people are not relieved from the responsibility of making special efforts to remove as far as possible, the sure result of that enslavement. And uh, for those, because it's so radical, that quote comes from, uh, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, an article yes. she wrote in the review and herald January 21st, 1896. Now, No one ever quotes that. (laughs) I've never heard. At least I've never heard that. Maybe in a black church, somebody is quoting it. But at at least in the white communities, I (laughs) know, at least in the white communities I've grown up in, no one has ever quoted that statement. And so you sit there and you say, um, you know, it's so, it's so contemporary in the sense that, you know, uh, those who say I had no part in it, right? Like, it the same same point of argument people still say, you know, well, that was done by people. I'm not, I didn't enslave anyone. Why should I have to pay for something And so the problem becomes like, well, this is a part of the Adventist tradition. This, this is, this right. is there. Absolutely. Right. And so the dilemma becomes being very much aware of where the parallels are between Ellen White and Adventist tradition through her and Cone, you know, not because you want to end the conversation but to legitimize the fact that it's supposed to take place and unfortunately the common experience with black theology is that well it's not it's not real it's not real theology mm. you know you're not doing you're not doing the western theology the correct way oh you're not oh let's have a conversation about race oh you're just talking about entitlement you're 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 not you're, this is the problem and it's like no this should especially not be happening within faith communities that root themselves in values that root themselves in a movement that was you know one of the the few that was uh you know took a hard stand on slavery and it becomes oh no 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 this what we have nothing to do with this 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 is unreal yeah. this is the world black lives matter anathema to adventism um mm-hmm. no no, it's not. And the problem, that's the idolatry that, that has to be broken, is to go back to your roots, just like the Reformers did, just like Adventism was trying to do, and say, okay, this is what our tradition actually says.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find interesting in the kind of work that you're talking about here, the reading that you've done, and some of the things you've just shared with, is simply that we haven't asked those questions of our history, and specifically, in this case of Ellen White, so you know, it may be that you, those number, you know, almost ten years ago or whenever it was when you initially did that research, you might have been the first person to go on EGW writings and put in those search terms.
2: That would be very sad. And <laughs> but, <laughs> that's truthfully, that's 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 sad when you think how many people are outspoken. Yeah. Right. But, but we know this, right. If you do, if you do anything online, you know, you get analytics, Mm. right. And so, you know, you can see how many people are actually clicking a link when you post it versus how many people commented. Yeah. And everyone knows that you go post a link for like a news website or whatever and you explosive article, about 85% of people don't even click it. They just comment based on the title Mm. and their assumptions.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. And that's, you know, fine, if ever there should be something that said, oh, that's the world, I would hope that was the world. But the sad truth is that's the church too. People people claim that they base themselves on the Bible and they've don't ever even open it up to go read it again uh, and find <laughs> out if that verse is there. They claim that Ellen White is the prophet who can't make mistakes, but how would they know? They haven't even read her to find out if there was one or not. Um, there, There is a real dilemma here in the church, ethically speaking, in the sense that um, you know the people who scream all lives matter uh, apparently haven't taken enough time to even value the black voices that are trying to speak about their own lives. Um, uh, there are things that need to be done and they're not, and people are, are, ignorant about it. And it's, it's unfortunate, but it's also why anti-racism is, uh, is not a unique effort. It, it's not some special few activists. It, it needs to be an intrinsic part of how one views the image of God and, and the prophetic role of the three angels message.
0: Mhm. And so one of the things that perhaps has been asked of Ellen White has been perhaps the le- less helpful part of this discussion. Some of the issues where people will pull out quotes from Ellen White where she seems to perpetuate some aspects of race and racism. And
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you know,
0: so that's that's kind of the other side of your chapter that isn't mm-hmm. in the chapter um as published uh but there was a part of it that you know you did look at some of the more problematic things she said in this way so what do we do with that what do we do with the tension between you know you can you know i listen to what you say i read your chapter in the book and go oh this is amazing this is another reason for us to even to champion ellen white as a defender of freedom and justice and goodness in the world but that's not how other people have used her in the past. What do we do with that?
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question, because the last thing you also want to do is create unknowingly a sort of new idol or a sort of new concept of, oh, this is just, this is St. Ellen, uh, and she is, you know, without flaw. and, and Activist, abs- Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Activist Ellen. Activist Ellen. And sometimes she could be. But the problem is, is that she is also human. And she also changes over time in various ways, not just with, you know, regards to racial issues, but a whole host of other issues. And that's probably been one of the least studied aspects in Adventism has been just formally looking at how does Ellen White change her opinions from time to time? Uh, you know, and, and it happens all over. I mean, a great example I tell my students is in Great Controversy. She goes on an extended rant, uh, uh, you know, based on Uriah Smith about how the church is not the bride of Christ. Uh, because he had made a particular argument, I think in Daniel revelation, where he said the same thing and, uh, the book Daniel revelation. So what ends up happening is though everyone reads great controversy. So they see that argument What they don't see is like a few years later uh, in unpublished letter after unpublished letter. She's talking about the church as the bride of Christ. So she clearly changed her mind and she never went back to edit the manuscript (laughs) to reflect that. Um, And so, you know, that's a great example. One of many, many of just how she's shifting and changing. And and you don't know that per se. So when you read one thing, she writes, you're reading Ellen White in that moment. You know, that does not tell you Mm -hmm. what is Ellen White 10 years later, 10 years previous. uh, And that's something I wish we would spend more time on, but in particular, obviously, there are some important changes that occur in the American scene uh, that define how Ellen White's uh, views shift or change in, in some ways. So, obviously, she goes ahead and is super optimistic during the Civil... Well, I wouldn't say, okay, maybe not optimistic, but she's very prophetic in the Civil War. She sees this as this larger conflict. She even equates, which I think is really interesting. I didn't mention this, but this is a... I did in the chapter... But I didn't mention it yet here. A really interesting parallel between Cone, early Cone, uh, when he was more skeptical about the avoidance of, of violence, is that Ellen White imagined that the Northern soldiers murdering uh, white Southerners was a fulfillment of the Gospel proclamation. which I thought, you know, and the quotes in the chapter, but the thing I thought that was like, wow, you know, she was willing to legitimize violence as part of the gospel, despite the pacifism of Adventism in general. That was a really interesting, you know, like it showed how stark in that moment she was willing to imagine the stakes. Um, It was very apocalyptic, almost. Now, then during the Reconstructionist era, which is the period in time in which you know Americans are are trying to to rebuild the Black community and create uh, opportunities, uh, this brief moment in which you have Black senators and 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 uh, or congressmen, and, and this is just a really interesting moment in human history. She's very optimistic, right? Spread in you know as much as you can the gospel into here and there, and and let's move, right? But what happens when the white communities begin to roll back? When the government starts to uh, take more favors from those who have been, uh, you know, taken away from their privilege, uh, what happens is she becomes a lot more sensitive to the violent threat that the rising uh, tide of white kind of violence could have for Adventist workers. So she starts telling people you shouldn't intermarry, you shouldn't, and you shouldn't integrate the churches. Uh, Why? Well, because it will provoke others. Right? So, as long as the thought was that the majority are going the right way, then she was okay with promoting and, and pushing as far as possible. Once it was going the wrong way, then she kind of pulls a Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, where he's like, well, I, I wish everyone here would just not marry. You know, Jesus is coming back so soon. How about we just not have sex? You know, it would be great. I, I'm celibate, but I think y'all should be because, you know we're going to be, it's just right around the corner. I think Ellen kind of did that too. She's like, yeah, Jesus right around the corner. What's the point in like putting ourselves in harm's way over this issue? We should probably pull back. It's getting really weird over there. Um, And so she becomes very pragmatic in a, in a pessimistic way. And this breeds, unfortunately the result of leading Adventism to kind of disown or forget the earlier kind of activist version of her ideas and more embrace this division that leads to a lot of the problems the church dealt with later on so in this sense you know i can understand why ellen white thought to go the direction she did i can also recognize that it was probably the wrong move or at least in some ways it was because of how much she um she didn't counterbalance it to ensure that the vision wouldn't fade um but okay you move on from there and you say There's also issues that she deals with in terms of her own biases, right? So this is, you know, you can't look at Ellen White's writings and say to yourself, oh, there's no way that, you know, she wasn't uh, racially biased or that she didn't have racist tendencies that all the various white people in her time might have had. So she clearly devalues black worship and she sees slave religious uh, mentalities and ideas not as uniquely, you know, overcoming the odds and representing Community history, but as representing something less than the Western style, European style of, of of instruction and pastoring and preaching, and so she she thinks, oh, they need to be civilized, right? If anyone's read, you know, Ibram X. Kendi's work, "How to Be an Anti Racist," you know, he goes into kind of these kinds of racist attitudes that used to promulgate people, where they're like, oh, they we just need to they they're not intrinsically this way, we they just been lowered down so much, we just have to bring them back up, right? So there's that, but then there's also issues involved with how she thinks about her language and her concepts. So um, you can take, for example, the time where she thinks, well, when we all, she's preaching to, I think it was a black church, you know, when we all get to heaven, you know, we'll all be as white as God, you know. Um, And people have struggled with that because it's like, you know, oh no, you know, she's just meaning, you know, I think the best defense usually is the one that says, well, she just means whiteness in like purity, which I think Cone would be listening to and be like, exactly. That's the point. (laughs) That's not better. That's you symbolically made race a part of what's pure and what's not. Like, I get right. it, okay? So, you know, I think I think no matter what you run into that issue with, with Ellen White is that she is a product of her times, even as she very clearly fights against it. And, but there's only so much yeah. she can because she is racially unaware. She doesn't see those aspects. But I think that we have to also be cautious and in, in kind in the sense that we don't want to, I don't think we should be overly harsh against her as much as we don't, stay blind to the issue she has so i know i did i do a lot of work on the apocrypha with ellen white and one of my articles uh deals with the issue of her amalgamation statement which has always been brought up with regards Mm -hmm. to race Mm -hmm. so she goes ahead and says you know um you know men uh the the amalgamation of man and beast was uh one of the most terrible things that occurred before the flood and, and precipitated it um I wrote an article for spess christiana where I and then was she
1: makes a correlation and then she makes a correlation to interracial marriage that's the that's the problem with the amalgamation statement
2: right and and one of the things that comes from this that's really interesting is when you look at um When I was studying how she utilized the Book of Jasher, which was very popular as a pseudepigraphic work spreading around by Mormon publishers, and a lot of Adventists were interested in it. And she draws on it extensively in that volume Mm. uh, for her pre-Noah descriptions. And in order of pages, like you can track as you go through the pages in Jasher, it's going through the pages in in that volume. So you're like, okay, she's caught, she's got this in front of her. She's drawing on insights uh. from it. And one of those insights has to do with the amalgamation of men with men and beasts with beasts. And so the dilemma becomes, and I explore in the article, is like, well, there's two problems that kind of can emerge from this. One is the sense that in Jasher, the amalgamation has nothing to do with men with beasts. Like, the men and the beasts are getting it on. It has more to do with mixing different groups of men together and mixing different animals together. Like, these are two distinct categories. Mm-hmm. So, the literary source doesn't lend itself to the way that we typically think. But, but gotcha. when we look at um, the issue of the men with men, in Jasher, this refers more to the violent men of Cain that are going on and their lineage versus the Seth kind of lineage. And when we look at Ellen White, we see very starkly that she is in fact drawing these descriptions of Cain's lineage and Seth's and that they are at war with each other and and violating each other. And so you start to come away with saying, well, from a narrative perspective, it makes more sense to assume within the narrative that this is a description of Canaanites and Sethites mixing together. Now, that would match a traditional Christian viewpoint that Augustine has proposed, you know, and has become normal ever since the Book of Enoch's angel interpretation kind of faded out. But, right, I've had a lot of people, they reacted to that, and they're like, are you really trying to say that there was nothing racially problematic? Look at the fact that, that you know, all these other Adventists took it as racial. Exactly. And this is where the complexity comes from. She may very well have never intended that text to serve a particularly contemporary racial perspective, or she may not have envisioned it specifically in the way that others took it, but you can't remove her complicity from the fact that when those other Adventists were proposing to take it in those ways, she did not counteract them, Mm. right? So this is the complexity of the conversation. She may not, when she wrote it, have intended it one way, but it doesn't change the fact that we can still find issues with how the reception of her works was not handled by her, right? Even if she just didn't want to cause a controversy, right? That's complicity. She's she's just not engaging in preventing the harm that those words could be used to construe. So I think the problem is a lot of people don't want that that nuance. They they'd much rather uh, say no. Either she's originally just a horrible racist person and she's clearly just as bad as anyone else, or she's got to be a saint. Mm-hmm. And it's like no, the truth is probably in the middle. And that's like the Bible. Everyone wants the Bible to be inerrant. Or it's just a human book. Mm. And the truth as any biblical scholars or any, you know, like Adventists especially, no, it's like, no, there's a middle ground here. Nathan the prophet can get stuff wrong, misspeak for God, and he still remains the prophet of God serving David. Like that doesn't negate it, but you can't ignore that it happened. You do have to recognize that reality. And I think that's the, the hard problem with Ellen White is being able to handle the complexity of gray yeah. and recognize that that requires uh, more of an onus, not on, can you quote the right quotes? What exactly does Ellen demand? No, it has more to do with how do you read? Like how Jesus mm-hmm. says to the lawyer in Luke, you know, what is written and how do you read it? Right? What is yeah. written? That's the complexity. But how you read it is the challenge of Black theology, is the challenge of Cone, is the challenge of ethics. How do you choose to read these texts? And so you could weaponize Ellen White to say Black worship styles are wrong. Look, she said this. Uh, you know, oh, look, white, white is God in heaven. She affirms whiteness as a good vow. You could weaponize this stuff, but that doesn't make it right just because there's quotes there. You're the interpreter how, what, what spirit, where's the spirit of God leading you? Or, um, as Ellen White told a slave, a pro-slavery person, you know, I don't care what arguments you have to give, presumably from scripture. Um, the Holy Spirit has shown us the way to go and that's the way we're going. And if you're not get out of the church, Mm. right? She's emphasizing the need to recognize what the spirit is leading you in terms of understanding how you read. And that goes for scripture that goes for tradition, that goes for Ellen White. And we need better readers of Ellen White in Adventism who are caring about the ethical importance of those interpretive decisions.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing with us today. We need to land this episode and uh, share it with the world um, because there's lots of good things in all of that. Thank you for sharing with us. And thank you, of course, for the chapter, for those who want to jump into this and reflect on it further. The chapter exists in a book near you called A House on Fire. Thank you, Claudia, for being with us as well and for adding to our conversation. Absolutely. You are
1: so welcome, Matthew. It was a pleasure to meet you and to hear about this journey that you've been on and and, and to learn and grow from you.
2: It was a pleasure to be able to be here and to be able to see you as well and also to, you know, put a face to the to the book chapter that you also contributed and has contributed much to the discussion in Adventism. Thank you for that contribution.
0: Ah, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you also to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices for putting this uh, podcast episode out into the world. The book is A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. We'll catch you next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The
1: kingdom is alive on the move with the
0: poor and the me and the hungry and the lonely oh, I never forget a